As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey folks, we're back for part two on the Sludge Entity. Before we dive in tonight, we'd like to take a moment to talk to you about something. As you've no doubt noticed, a gaggle of sponsors have begun to line up for your attention during each episode. This is outstanding news for us. It means that Astonishing Legends might actually move from an experiment in making a living to a proven method. And that means that we get to keep doing the show, at least until we have a spectacular public falling out in a bar that the podcasting tabloids pick up. Yeah, I don't think there's any podcast. We know it's different from how we started out, but considering the alternative is us going off the air and back to our original jobs as a mule skinner and a wet work expert, we are extremely grateful. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. We need you guys as much as we need our sponsors. Without you, we have no show. And without them, well, we have no show. We have an expensive hobby, and a hobby does not pay the bills. That's why your experience as listeners really matters to us. And because some of you have asked, you should know that we don't have a ton of say about where sponsorships fall in the program. When you listen to other podcasts where all the sponsorships are up front or at the very end, you're most likely listening to a show that is either much shorter than ours or conversely has so many listeners that the hosts can use their influence to dictate ad timings. It's a bit of a tightrope integrating everything, but doing it is essential to the long-term survival of Astonishing Legends. We're working hard to make it all flow well, so please bear with us while we sort things out as best we can. And lastly, remember that we really do believe in every sponsor we have, or we wouldn't have them on the show. We've actually turned down some that we didn't feel strongly about. Over the past year and a half, you guys have sent a lot of emails saying you want to support the show. Some of you are already pledging to us on our Patreon page, and we're extremely grateful. You're our backbone. Your contributions have allowed us to hire an extremely talented editor. For the rest of you... Another way to support us is to take our sponsors up on some of their outstanding offers. That way, we get street cred with them, and they come back, which in turn allows us to keep doing this thing. What is this thing anyway? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook. And this is Forrest Burgess. We had been through this step before. We know what it's like to get into that fight-or-flight mechanism. And when it comes to your children, you fight. John, Jack's father from last week's episode. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on the Sludge Entity. Tonight, things take a turn in the story of Jack. We'll pick up where we left off last week, but before we do, we want to warn you that this is one of our most emotionally charged shows that we've ever done, and with good reason. For those of you who are not parents, 
Think back to the love and self-sacrifice your parents or whoever raised you brought you up with. For those of you that are parents, you might need to pull the car over or be somewhere you can sit down privately for part of this episode. It gave me chills, and not just because of the implications of who or what was causing the problems with Jack. In reality, that doesn't even matter. In fact, it doesn't matter what you personally believe about the story. It gave me chills because it's the truest expression of what it means to love a child that I've ever heard on our show, or pretty much any show for that matter, and when I think about it, it still makes my eyes water. Over the past week, since we released the first episode of this two-part series, We've had a lot of contact from well-meaning listeners with intentions running from support to concern over whatever Jack's real problem was, real in quotes. Forrest and I have had a lot of discussion about this, and we'll touch on it after the interview, but there are some things that I would like to say about it now. We're not presenting this story because we think we know what happened. We're not presenting it to frame it with ours or anyone else's belief system or knowledge, whether that be pure medical science, religious faith, atheism, or any other ism. We're presenting it as entertainment, dark though it may be. John and Deborah believe there is a message in it, and that by sharing their story, even at the risk of being judged, they might be able to give some emotional support to a family or an individual that could be going through a similar trial, and maybe even some guidance on what to do about it. Our show is a suitable platform for the tale, so here we are. This is part of what we do. All that we ask is that when you listen to it, instead of trying to diagnose Jack online from a podcast, Just listen to the story and understand that whatever brought this family to this place was exceptionally real, regardless of its origins. Next, try to imagine what you would do if your own child or another dear loved one were in this scenario. How many things would you try if you were convinced what was happening to them might take them from you forever? There is no doubt that some members of our audience are dealing with life-threatening and debilitating issues personally on a daily basis. In fact, some of you have even written to us about the solace our show brings you, and we're honored to be able to keep you company. Taking every possible step is what tonight's show is about, but it's also about taking it responsibly, which John and Deborah did. They were at a dead end and facing medical bills in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. There's another factor that might not have occurred to you. How do you get insurance coverage for something undiagnosable? They took whatever measures they could to make things better. To be sure, that doesn't always work. But sometimes it does, and when it does, who are we as observers to say what percentage of their recovery was science, medicine, faith, or just unconditional love? Recovery is recovery. So whether this story strikes a chord with you because of something you or a loved one are going through, just know that you are loved too. Everyone is. Well said, friend. Okay, so now let's rejoin our interview with John and Deb. We're going to pick up where we left off last week when John was talking about what the remote viewers were seeing when they looked at the photographs of Jack that John and Deb sent to them. What were some of the more poignant things that came from the photos for the for these folks doing the readings? The feedback that we first got from James is that his team could sense that there was something there, but they couldn't really get a, a firm grip on it. The one thing that they did see, they did see, well... It was attached. There was something coming out of his yeah. head, and it was attached to something. Something was pulling from the top of his head and was attached to Jack. Right. That's kind of owing to something draining him. Something right. is is not only like a puppet. Beating off him, basically. Right, right. That's horrific. And the other thing, too, is that this was coming from the people that were remote viewing. They were getting this image 
they hadn't heard any of the background other than the fact that there's something going on. That's the exact same spot where all of the doctors were saying, well, there might be an inflammation of the meninges. Really, in this area, it was the exact same spot. Wow, that is, no, that's interesting because, and we're not going to get too far into this, maybe with James, we'll, uh, we'll approach it, but the spiritual and physical connection between something that's happening, you know, that's unseen and something that's physically happening, a, a an actual spot. Right. Okay, so imagery is very important. That gets them uh, focused, especially with the technique of remote viewing, which will be a future episode long down the line because it's it's just so it's just fascinating to me uh, because it's an actual process with steps and and it can be learned. But they are using the photos for their own kind of blind studies to kind of get a handle on what they see if it matches up with Jack's story at all, what parts do, what photos do, and what impressions by his team which ones are are matching up. Now, this is probably the most fascinating thing about the imagery. Like you mentioned, Jack is now asked to reluctantly draw whatever it is that he's seeing. So tell us about that. So the picture that Jack drew, again, we were expecting after hearing about it for several weeks that it was going to be some kind of a, a shadow or some kind of a dark figure. He instead drew a picture of a faceless person standing there with a huge sword in his hand that had a gem in the center of the hilt. It was a, I think it was a green gem, but as far as the the picture that he drew, it was absolutely nothing like what he had talked about. Once he drew this, you're the first one, of course, to look at it, and you ask Jack, uh, hey, this doesn't really look like what you've been describing. What was his explanation? No, that's what I've always been talking about. I want to make it clear to the audience. No one is coming to your house. They're doing all this remotely. You're sending them photos, that sort of thing. The photo, by the way, with the straw or the cable, the image of that is so frightening. I cannot imagine hearing that, you know, someone is seeing that connected to your child. I just can't. Well, that's that's an impression that they're getting from the right. photo. It's not like that. No, I know. Right. I know. Yeah, just to be clear, yeah. that's no, not I've actually in the that. photo. I, but... I understand that. But I just, I can't imagine how you felt when you heard that, because how do you fight that? How do you, I mean, how did you feel when they told you that that's what they were seeing in that, in that one particular image? I don't want to say relieved, but at least we had someone that said, well, this is what's going on. And we're like, okay, finally, we've got someone that can give us an explanation as to what, what's happening. Yeah, I agree. It did seem to start to put pieces into place. Because finally you were getting an answer of some kind. That seemed to make some sense. I, I think answer might be the wrong way to put it. Information right. is a better way to put it from the standpoint that there wasn't a solution on the table yet, but at least we had something that we could act on. Okay. Which, which no other doctor or, or practice could tell you so far. Especially when the other practices and the other physicians are saying, no, 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 come back next time. Right. Okay, so let's talk about what happens now. They're identifying these things from these images. What's the next step for the group? I can remember when James told us, listen, here's my timeline. This is what I'd like to do. Um, We're going to gather everybody together here on our end, and we're going to do it, what did he say, Friday or Saturday? Yeah, he said two weeks, basically. There was a timeline, and it was seemingly a little further out in the distance as far as, okay, we're going to do this, and you're going to read that book, and we're going to get the incense. We're going to gather all these things up. Um, So it was a prep time. I think that's why he 
decided that it was going to be, you know, a little further down the road. And, you know, that was okay because we had we had a goal. We had things we needed to check off the list and, and that was okay. But it didn't turn out like that. It yeah. didn't turn out like that at all. So as far as the, the picture that Jack drew, it wasn't for us. The whole point was that we needed to basically send it off to them because they wanted to get not only an image of that, but also they, they wanted to have something that Jack had touched, yeah. something that he had drawn. Put that in the mail, sent that off to, to Texas. In the meantime, that was when we first did the incense, when we did the scrubbing around the house. They're giving you instructions on a timeline, I believe, or, or an order that you have to perform them right. uh, before they actually, I guess, in a, kind of a, uh, a culmination of some event or something that they're going to do. But you're practicing these steps. And not only that, you're having to le- lead your regular lives. Right. And do all this. And not really tell Jack what was going on. So John and I were kind of talking behind closed doors and did you get that and did you get that and have we done this and that and the other thing. But to Jack, it was all like, hi, how are you? How are you feeling? What's going on? You know, like yeah. we just had to kind of keep up daily, you yeah. know. And the other thing, too, is we were talking about these things not here in the house. Right. OK, so with regard to the group and what they discovered over the course of time that they were assisting you. And how long was your involvement with the group in Houston? Was was this weeks or months or just a few days? Weeks. Yeah, it was just a couple of weeks. It was meant to be longer, but yeah. again, by the time that uh, by the time they got things, the timeline dramatically accelerated. Okay, and they identified, for lack of a better word, uh, this cast of characters that were looming in your home and interfering with and or protecting Jack, right? So all that they got as far as their initial remote viewing is that there was something that was draining energy from Jack, as as James kind of put it. I forget the exact creature, but basically he kind of described it as a spider, almost an ethereal spider taking energy away from him. It's It's one of those things that's out there in the universe is the way that he kind of casually explained it. He kind of put it in D&D terms, at which point he and I connected. Oh, yeah, it's on uh, page 83 of the Monster <laughs> Map. Oh, yeah, the first one. <laughs> right, right. Because it was that kind of image. Tobin's uh, spirit guide. Yeah. It, it was kind of to that level from the standpoint that he just said, well, you know, it's more of an annoyance. It's nothing malevolent. Oh, okay. That, that was what their original read was. When they got the paper. Well, first off, before they got the paper. So we sent things off to them. That was when we first did the incense. Jack didn't know what we were doing. We went ahead and we pulled out the the incense burner that we purchased. We put the myrrh in there. We put the frankincense in there. Uh, we put the, what was the other? Kind of your holiday blend. Then, yeah. You know. It's kind of interesting. It is pretty much the exact same thing that they burn at churches, yes. Yeah, well, there's a reason for that, uh, I yeah. believe. So we put it in there. We light it up in front of all the kids. And the kids are standing there saying, what? what's that all about? <laughs> right. It's a little pungent, isn't it? I mean, yeah, just a little. Yeah. <laughs> with, the exception of, with the exception of Jack, though, because as soon as he smelled it, he immediately got violently ill. Wow. We were down in the kitchen during this. He went over to the sink and he just started throwing up. Yeah. So as these things are happening, though, in, in your minds, things are making more and more sense that oh, there's yeah. something to this. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Our daughter was home from college at this point. She had come home. This was for Easter break. The next step was to go around the house with this incense and kind of bless each one of the rooms. 
just kind of spread the smoke around. And she was following us, just kind of watching things because she was curious. She was interested. You know, she's she just graduated with a chemical engineering degree, so she's not she's by nature skeptical. One thing that she pointed out to us later on down the line is that every room that we walked into with this smoke, it would rise up about six feet and all of our ceilings are eight foot ceilings. It would rise up about six feet and then just hang there. Okay. So it's like a it's like a jello parfait. There's yeah, there's clear yeah, there's clear levels, but now it's apparent that something is keeping it from going too far up. Okay, so let's take a step back here for a minute. You know what my first thought about the smoke was? <laughs> does it have something to do with your layman's understanding of thermodynamics? It actually it kind of does because, <laughs> you know, cold air is denser than hot air. So maybe there was a layer of cold air at the top of the room and the smoke couldn't penetrate it because it was warmer. I don't I don't know. Right. So the next question becomes, why is the air a foot below the attic colder than the air in the rest of the room? Uh, since, you know, hot air rises, of course, the air is always warmer towards the ceiling of a room, right? Yeah. yeah. So even if the pull-down attic door in the ceiling is open, I still don't think there'd be much of an exchange of air, you know, hot or cold, right away. Also keep in mind, cold air, and I mean really cold air, is often associated with spirit activity. That's a great point. Cold air sinks, and uh, which doesn't, so my whole initial point doesn't make sense. I clearly need to add that I'm speculating oh. on something I know nothing about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, clearly. On that note, let's talk about something we do know about before we get back to the interview. Maybe the Great Courses Plus has a class on temperature inversion. Then I could talk pretty about it. Well, they cover so many subjects, I'm guessing they probably do. Are you still watching Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals? Oh yeah, I just finished the series. I really gotta lay off the bar bets with you. Well, you should do that anyway. I always lose. <laughs> Dazzle me with your knowledge. Okay, so remember this rhyme from when you were a kid? Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Aw, sweet little nursery rhyme. Isn't it, though? Uh, but did you know that there's a second verse? Really? No, I thought that was the whole thing. Actually, uh, I never heard a second verse. Yeah, uh, You don't remember it from a kid, either. That's the you know, that's all you can remember. But uh, here it is. So, close your door and lock and latch it, because here comes Lizzie with her hatchet. Ooh, that really puts the juice in that one. That's scary. Yeah. <laughs> I guess all nursery rhymes are kind of scary. They all have a dark tone, yes. Yeah. They're uh, cautionary tales. Well, forensic anthropologist Professor Elizabeth A. Murray goes in-depth on the Lizzie Borden investigation, and I gotta tell you, it's fascinating. That family had its issues. For example, Lizzie had been an animal lover and kept pigeons as a hobby in the loft of the family barn. Well, eventually her dad, who, by the way, had several enemies of his own in town, got fed up with the pigeons and cut off all their heads with an axe. Yikes. The Borden family clearly had an axe to grind. Uh, Sorry. Well, <laughs> it was mostly hatchets, apparently. Okay. Uh, that's just one of the 24 lectures in Dr. Murray's course, and I was completely enthralled by each one of them. We really want you guys to try the Great Courses Plus out, so they're giving you a special chance to watch hundreds of their courses for free, including forensic history, crimes, frauds, and scandals. We know you'll love The Great Courses Plus as much as we do. So sign up today, and as one of our podcast listeners, you'll immediately get one month free to start watching as many lectures as you want. And be sure to check out Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals. To start your free trial today, sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. 
That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Check it out. All right, let's get back to the interview. Where were we? Well, I was just about to ask John about the attic in their house. Oh, right. They weren't fond of that attic, were they? No, they were not. Let's get back to it. Now, I believe you'd mentioned uh, in the other interview that in your bedroom, there is a kind of a trap door that leads to the attic. I believe it's, it's yep. one of those kind of folding ladders. Right. Were you supposed to go into the attic with the incense? I don't think that was called out, but I got to tell you at this point, there was no way I was going to go into the attic. Did you have a bad feeling about it? If I got to be honest, it's the same reason why for the last two years, there's always been the bathroom light on. Wow. There are just some things that you're never going to change. <laughs> right. Well, of course, as James's team uh, in more detail, but apparently there are zones or areas in the house, one being Jack's bedroom at the time here. So something is keeping this the smoke, whatever purpose it has and whatever it's able to do from going up into the attic. And it's effectively kept you, John, out of the attic as well. Yeah. And actually a little bit of background on the house. Deborah was friends with the person who was our real estate agent at the time when we were looking for our house here in 2001. And she's someone that went to the same college that Deb went to, but about 70 years beforehand. Uh, (laughs) Right. So we looked at various houses. We finally found this house, which had actually been vacant for about a year and a half, two years. We said to her, so Cecilia, what's your advice on this house? Oh, run like hell. (laughs) Really? Don't think, don't even consider it. Yeah. But she said that mostly because of the fact that it was, it was in pretty rundown shape from the standpoint. This is a a relatively well-off community. We liked the idea of sweat equity at the time because we were still young and we had backs that could do things like this. Right. Uh, So we decided to go ahead and move into this house. One thing that was always kind of strange, but didn't really think about it much in the one bedroom that first was Sarah's, our, our oldest, and then eventually became Jack's. There's a hole up in the ceiling in the closet going up into the attic. Didn't really think about it. Just figured uh, somebody... A hole like like it's uh, there was a door there and it, it's framed and everything? Or just like a hole like somebody punched a hole or... It looks like somebody pu- either fell through the ceiling at one point, okay. you know, like we were up yeah. in the rafters. And, you know, it was, since it was in her closet, we just kind of, you know, put some uh, mesh, mesh over, over it. it and, <laughs> right. Know, couldn't really see it. So we were like, yeah, it's fine. Right. So this house... Wasn't so fine. We're... <laughs> We're technically the third owners, but as far as the previous owners, they were actually out of the country. So it was a rental for about, I don't know, maybe 10 years. Yeah. And then there was a, the first set of owners. The house itself was built in 77. Right. So not that old, It's but it's had more than just a few people, a few souls inhabiting it. Correct. And on top of that, too, and this is something that we may want to talk about further, it's the fact that this... This area was, I guess, lived in by Native Americans. There was a tribe that really spent a lot of time down the road a, a bit further to the south. We were on the crossroads between two different settlements. One was the well-to-do settlement, and the other one, which is at the north end of the lake, which we can actually see from a bedroom on a, on a good day. Basically, that's where all the outcasts were sent. So on the day that they received the drawing you guys had something else happen at the house or you did, Deb, you actually personally witnessed something that was beyond just the scope of something that was internal. 
I uh, I was with the kids. We were here in the house. You're playing a game, right? We were well. We were hanging out, but I don't know. People were cranky about this and cranky about that, and all just everybody kind of seemed to be on edge. And so I decided that maybe the kids should get off electronics and get off that, and maybe play a game together. So they all grumpily went into the dining room and they were trying to play and Jack's like, I don't want to play. And I was like, whatever. And it was just a really agitated period of time. And all of a sudden Jack says that his head hurts. And I said, Oh, okay. I said, how badly does it hurt? And he's like, it really hurts. It really, really hurts. And I said, okay, well, let's get you some ibuprofen and see how this is all going. And so I'm getting it out of the cabinet. And he's like, I am not an idiot. Like, just kind of nobody had been talking to him. He just blurts this out. And I'm like, who are you talking to, Jack? And he's like, I'm not an idiot. The voice is in my head. I'm not an idiot. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I go over to him and I'm like, What's going on? And he's like, they're talking to me. They're talking to me. And so I just threw my hands on top of his head. He had kind of slid down the front of the cabinets and was sitting on the floor and just kind of moving back and forth, holding his head. And I put my hands on top of his head. And my oldest daughter came in to the kitchen. And I just said, Michael the Archangel, all of the angels of light, Please help us now. We need your help. Sorry, it's kind of an emotional thing. No, it's okay. okay. Take your time. And I said, Be gone. You may not stay in this child. You are not welcomed here. Get out. I claim this child as mine. He is my possession. You may not have him. And I was just repeating myself over and over again. Michael, the Archangel, Angels of Light, we need you now. Please surround us and protect us. And the kids came in from the dining room and just kind of, we all just formed this circle around Jack and we just held him. And it was at that point, I didn't know what else to do, but I just, I felt so protective of this child and what was going on and that they couldn't have him. They just could not have him. What did the other kids do? They just... I, I didn't... We hadn't talked to any of the kids about any of this. About James or their group or what they were asking us to do or anything. And the kids just instinctively surrounded us. They just they just came up and they all, they just surrounded us. And we all just held on to Jack. How did that affect him in the short run and the long run? Well, he said the voices stopped. Like immediately, right? Or- Pretty much immediately. Yeah. And we all just kind of hugged each other. And I said, we need to get out of the house. We need to go. We need to get out of the house. We cannot stay here right now. And we just kind of all got shoes on and just gathered up whatever we needed. And we just got Jack out of the house. We called John. We said, this is what's gone on. 
Um, well, and, I didn't get the details as to what gone on. What had no, gone but on. we said we we just. Yeah, Sarah just said we're going to go out for dinner. You get to come with us. Yeah. What? And we called James. We put a put a call into James. I think he called us back or something. But yeah, he just left a message for him. And then right. We call when we were there. And then while we were waiting for dinner, I went out into the car and told him what had happened and what what I had done, and he said you did exactly what you were supposed to do. And by this time they had gotten a letter. They got the image. The first thing they said was, holy shit. This was something that they very rarely see from the standpoint that this, the way that they described it is that this is as far that something has ever gone into, but not actually reaching possession that they had ever seen. This was an ancient being. They they ended up giving it the nickname of, um, was it Slim or was it Sparky? I don't remember. Well, I, I believe so, uh, Lori had called it Slim because uh, I think she had seen it or envisioned it as being very tall, wispy, uh, right. move like smoke, or she described it as uh, like a cape trailing somebody, but basically yep. dark, black, shadowy smoke. And I think uh, Debbie Chestnut as well. I and I can't remember which one, but they had a coined a term. It was, it was probably a Kelta, I believe, who works on James's team. That it's a sludge entity, as she called mm-hmm. it. Yeah, all that they said is that this is something that has been here for. Again, like Deb said, it's an ancient entity. Once they finally saw Jack's drawing, they knew exactly what was going on. Um, this thing was basically hiding up in the attic. It already had three prisoners. It had three Native Americans that it was holding, keeping. Holding yeah, it was holding. It was determined to go ahead and take all of us, and Jack was the next one that it was going to take. To recap there, James and the team had requested that Jack make a drawing of what he was seeing, of what was tormenting him, what was what he was picturing. He makes this drawing, and instead... It doesn't look like what he had described, this kind of black smoke, spidery type of, right. of being. It looks more like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, kind of a Native American warrior with a large sword and a jewel at the end of the hilt. Correct. Is that correct? So I was thinking about this because we don't know how the other side operates or what's really going on or what people really see when they see it or describe it, but... I see it as three different ways here. Either possibly that as Jack's drawing this, he's being influenced not to draw the actual thing. I thought the same thing. That's interesting that you said By that. the thing itself. Yes. Right. And the they, and James had said that at one point, that this thing was really trying to be as deceptive as possible, that it right. was really trying to get Jack to act out in a manner in which was as deceptive as possible. The other thing too is that they had described that Really, because Jack and this entity had merged as closely as they had, that this this particular protective spirit, this Native American warrior who was actually trying to rescue his three friends, couldn't distinguish between Jack and this entity any longer. So the thing that was actually attacking Jack was also this Native American. Oh. And on top of that too, one of the one of the other background pieces for Jack, he is younger brother, myself, we have all been very active 
in scouting. So one of the things that is hanging all over Jack Broom is a lot of Native American artifacts. From his arrow of light, he's got feathers, he's got... Hey, I'm an eagle scout. (laughs) Yeah, Scott knows exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. Impressive. So Jack's in the OA, he's got all of those things all over the place. So there's a lot of iconography that's there in his room, which also probably made him very very connected to this spirit as well as to everything that was going on. Wow. So, and by the way, congratulations to him. Order of the arrow. Pretty cool. Thank you. Um, and, I, and since, since everything, again, this, this on a side note, since then he's been an SPL. So he's, Oh, that's great. He's hopefully on his way. That's awesome. What is that? Uh, nice. Senior patrol leader. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's awesome. He had a miserable time at it, but that's. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. Man, that was intense. I got to tell you, the part of that where she gets choked up, chokes me up. I I can't even imagine. Yeah, I I know. Well, let's lighten up for a second here with a quick message from a new sponsor for the show. I have a beard. That you do, my friend. I've had it a long time now, off and on most of my adult life. And let me tell you something. It's not soft and pretty. (laughs) It's like one of those bed of spikes that Hindu yogis hang out on. Oh, it's no joke. I can't tell you how thrilled I've been with the Truman Starter Set at Harry's.com, which we're going to tell you how to get a deal on with our promo code ALP. My beard grows so fast, I generally have to shave about every three hours. Well, if you listen carefully, you can actually hear it growing on the mic sometimes. And the Truman is awesome because it can handle shaving a beard as tough as mine without tearing up the pale 10-year-old child skin on my lower neck. Aw, well, I'm generally clean-shaven, so I have to do even more work than you do. And Harry's is an easy sell for me because I've actually been with them for a couple of years now, and I love them. Drugstore razors are such a rip-off, and the lotions and creams are runny and whipped full of air. With Harry's, not only do you get the razors, you get high-quality shaving cream and lotions that make the whole process of shaving a pleasure. On top of that, it's about half the price of their competitors that you find at the store. And I don't know about you, man, but I can't stand going to the drugstore anyway. Mail it to me. (laughs) Yeah, well, the other thing that's cool about Harry's is that they own a 94-year-old razor factory in Germany. And that's where their blades come from. These razors are no joke. Harry's starter set, called the Truman, is a great option for new customers and an amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor handle moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five-blade German-engineered razors. Plus, there's a special offer for fans of the show. Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase with a promo code ALP. Go to harrys.com right now and look for the Truman set. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter code ALP at checkout and get $5 off and help support the show. Stop compromising. Give Harry's a try today. All right, so back to John and Deb. In this next segment, we take a look at the big picture of everything that's going on in their house, according to James Sangster and his team at Houston Ghost Research. It's definitely a crowded house. Are you making an 80s band reference again? Maybe. Yeah, I like those guys, actually. Okay, let's roll it. That's very interesting, and that is not something that came through in the other in the interview from the prior show, to, for me anyway. The conflagration between the characters and the confusion of the warrior getting confused between Jack and this evil entity because they had merged to this point where he was just trying to free these hostages in the attic. This story is unbelievable. It well, is so great. There, there's, like, I mean, and I don't mean great. I mean, right. not it's, great for it's Jack. Fantastical it's fantastical. Like, it's, yeah. it's so frightening. And I can't imagine what you guys went through with this. And it, which brings me to one of my 
questions. Why do you want to tell this story? I mean, why risk? You know that people are going to second guess you. They're not going to believe you. Or they're going to think all kinds of things. Why, why are you guys so willing to share this story? Well, I've only shared it with a few people. And one of them, my brother, I think I shared it with him. And I haven't really heard much from him. Uh, wow. I shared it. It's you're about to share it with a hundred thousand people for the record. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we have, we have a lot of listeners. Not all at once. Some people, yes. Some people, uh, it's just kind of up there when, when they grab it. For me, um, sharing it, one, it helps validate what happened, right? It wasn't just a dream. It just, it wasn't something that you've thought may have happened or maybe it didn't. Right. Every time we say it, it's, it's, just kind of resets and kind of helps you go, oh yeah, that did happen. And this, this is true. And then on top of that, I was born and raised Catholic, but I never really got it. I didn't get the message and I don't know why they don't say it more probably because people wouldn't listen, but that message that evil is out there. It truly is out there. Right. Well, I believe out of all the denominations, probably the Catholic right. Church does saying, the most. Like, you, know. you know, that was where I was born and raised, but I didn't get it. I really, and now I do get it. And I think other people would be reassured if they've got things going on in their lives that they're not crazy, that, you know. Oh, no, you you said ex- exactly something that uh, I had spoken with John earlier today, and I recounted this story. We had a a listener call in who wanted to tell their story, but was afraid to kind of write it down and was very just unsure about it, but I had called in and I talked to them for, it was about three hours, seriously, just about everything. And the one thing that they said was, thank you so much because I just wanted somebody to say I wasn't crazy. Right. I just wanted somebody to say that this does happen Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not on drugs. I'm not insane. I know. And you know what? Don't tell me what happened to me. I know what happened. I know what I saw. And I relate some stories of just some other friends. And and just quickly here, this is one of the reasons that I chose to do this along with Scott here. And we work really well together, I believe. One of the things I said to Scott early on is like, look, I don't mind doing personal accounts, stories of of people and, and their strange experiences. And we've had a few of them now. This is really the first one that's been one of my friends. But the reason is that if you talk to one or two or a certain amount of degrees of people, one of them is going to have a story that just can't be explained that resides within the paranormal. Right. And, and if they don't say, I'm sure they know somebody that that has happened to. And after a certain level, it's just because they're not, if you don't hear about it, they're not telling you because of the backlash. So thank you so much for, for telling a story. But that's the reason. It's not real common, but it happens. T- decent, honest trustworthy people. Absolutely. And to us. Yeah, well, yeah. As, as much as you can be, sure, John. But <laughs> Well, and I think the two reasons that I not only want to share this, but, you know, Deb and I have talked about this. We've tried to reach out to other groups in the area. There really are none. I think the first one, kind of like Deb said, as far as our background, as far as being Catholics, to me, one of the things that always, as a child, even angered me when, when going to mass, it's the people that sit there in their coats, checking their watch, looking to get out the door. The way that mass used to end, the phrase was always eat to misa est, which basically means you're supposed to go out there and, and do something about it. Right. Right. So in some ways, again, the, the metaphor of, 
the Warriors really what this is all about from the standpoint that, to be frank, Deb, I was the one that kind of facilitated and later on down the line set up the, the protection wards around the property, but Deb kicked this thing's ass. <laughs> right, right. That's the kind of thing that not only the world needs more of, but also it is affecting more people, this kind of thing, this kind of problem in the world. And right. if there are more people who are willing to see that there are solutions that sometimes are outside of the box, the better. One thing that John and I had talked about, I said this early on, I'm not going to poke at you guys or your story point by point, but also in a very general sense, we can anticipate the questions that people are going to have. And some of them will be, well, how do you know it wasn't something that's just kind of naturally occurring? And so John and I had earlier talked about stories like this where they have some very personal validations. And a couple of them, I, I believe if you would tell us uh, about your other younger son, this happened at the dinner, I believe, when you yeah. all got out of the house, take a break, also kind of as diversion so that you could communicate a little with James, have this set up and just really get out of that very tense situation. So the family's talking and you have two of your children, and I believe all four of them were there. In the conversation that we had with, with James, one of the things that he said is that you guys need to stay the hell away from there from right now. We're going to accelerate the time frame, And one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to split up the team members so that one person was going to talk with the warrior spirit, explain that there's a difference between these two people and that Jack is a good guy. This other person is the one that needs to be targeted. The other person is going to focus on tracking down Slim, tracking down this entity and actually trying to ferret him out. And the other one is going to do more investigation kind of as to the rest of the spirits or the rest of the entities that might be in the area. So basically they went into DEFCON. Is it DEFCON 1 that's top? Or <laughs> yeah, DEFCON 1 is the top one. Yeah, <laughs> right. I only know that because They went into DEFCON 1. Yeah. Right. Because even the phrase that, that James had is that within the next three days, he said, you'll see this thing getting nuked from orbit. Right. I remember, I remember that phrase, but they're basically, they're attacking it from, well, all like any good, yeah, all sides, like yeah, uh, uh, both from, flanks. That's from Alien, isn't it? I'm it, not sure. It, <laughs> we're going to nuke it from more of it. I'm pretty oh, sure. Right. I can't and one of the things that we said, we did ask, is it okay for us to talk to Jack now? Because obviously with this episode that happened in the afternoon, as well as kind of the fact that the cat's out of the bag, as far as the, the incense and everything like that, can we talk with him? Can we, can we have a conversation? I said, you know, you're not in the house. That's okay. And that's why when we went into dinner, we talked with the kids and we kind of said, okay, this is what's going on. And Deb was on one, one side of the table. I was on the other side of the table and we were talking with people independently. Max was, that's his younger brother. He said, you know, I've been having these strange dreams too. And again, we took that drawing that Jack gave us and immediately put it in the mail after we talked with him about it. Didn't share that with anybody in the house. Talked with Max. One of the things that he said is that he had had this very vivid dream. He was in a white room. He was all dressed in white. The only other thing that was there in the room was a mirror. And he was sitting in front of the mirror. Then out of the mirror started to come this black figure 
It was floating towards him. At which point, he then reached over to his side, picked up the sword that was there on the ground, sticking straight up. He grabbed it, he swung it, and he cut that shadow in half. And the gem that was in the sword, that was red at the time, then turned green. Wow. And then he woke up. Okay. So he had, just to be clear here, he had not, Jack did the drawing, the drawing gets uh, sealed up, gets sealed up and mailed away. Max was not aware of the drawing. You guys had not discussed that particular image of of that particular being with no. Max at all. He no. just volunteered that this was something he experienced independently. Correct. Right. And he basically described exactly what Jack drew as far as the sword. Now, there was another point, Deborah, or I'm sorry, should I call you Deb or Deborah? Whichever. Okay. So there was another point, Deb, <laughs> where in, in the prior show that we had listened to to get ready for this interview, you had mentioned that you thought you had also maybe heard some voices. Well, not only Deb, but I believe John, putting, you... putting him his son to bed, heard them as well. Or was it just John? I think it was just John. John had heard scratchings on the wall. He had heard, I think you'd heard voices. You had felt some things in bed at night, things coming up and trying to grab your feet. Yeah, I I had heard scratching. I had heard voices one night when I was lying in bed by myself. I think Deb was sleeping downstairs in part to try and finally get some rest. Plus, I think that things were elevated at the time as things tended to be around that point. And it was definitely one of those frozen fear kind of things. I opened up my eyes and there was definitely something that was there in the bed. And in classic terms, it was darker than the room around it. Really? Um, so you, and, you kind of had a shadow person episode of yourself. Uh, I had something looking at me. Yeah. It just had big eyes and a smile and it was looking at me. You could oh. make out facial features? Um, I could make out eyes and I could make out a a mouth. That's all that I could make out. Good Lord. It, it was almost kind of a okay, so, thing. And we're still living in this house. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we have blasted this house and continue to blast it pretty much on a monthly, if not daily. It depends on the day. But there are days when I'm like, okay, Michael, Angels of Light, we need you here. We need a, just a clean sweep. I remind evil that it is not welcome here. It may not claim anyone. It may not have any of the people. They are mine. Um, and I just, I go about the house and, you know, I'm sitting here right now with a rosary wrapped around my hand. So. And several years ago, after, after things had happened with a, with a certain juice company, um, <laughs> yeah. a friend of mine was sitting there. He was drinking one back. I said, why are you drinking that juice? Don't you understand that, that there were just a number of people that got different infections from it? There are people who are sick. He said, yep, right now this has got to be the safest drink in the world because you know that they can't afford to have something else happen. <laughs> right. So right. as ridiculous as it probably sounds, and I know to the few people that, that Deb talked to about this, they kind of looked at her as if she was on crazy juice. This is probably the safest place in the world from the standpoint that it has been cleansed. It's been something that we've set up safe zones around and yes even though it's it will probably be about another 23 years before i turn off the bathroom light at night but right 
it's one of those things where it's it's at least a known commodity. Okay. I feel like you've pretty much told the story very effectively, I might add. I do want to, we do want to move to where we we have a few questions for you guys. There's there's one thing. There was one other thing that we didn't share from the dinner. Oh, okay. So Sarah, our oldest, who had been in that room in the first place, the same time that one of us was talking to Max, and at this point, I don't even remember which one was talking to the other, since everything kind of blended together. We're talking to Sarah about this, and she said, "Oh, wait a minute. Are you talking about the storyteller?" I said, "What are you What are you talking about? You know, the guy that used to give me all the stories." What? So when she was younger, she was in this same bedroom, and she was an author when she was younger because she shared at the time. Yeah, that's because this spirit used to come to me and tell me all these stories, all these great Native American stories that were just really inspirational to me. And it was something that I used for my poetry, for my short stories, for all of my, for all the things that I did for NaNoWriMo. It was, it was a great source of inspiration for me. You guys mentioned she's published, right? Yeah. She is. Okay. So when you say she's an author, you don't just like everybody say, Hey, my kid's an author. Your kid oh, actually no, no. is an she's, author. Yeah. She was, yeah. She's been published in a couple of teen magazines and playwriting thing. For oh yeah. Too. Playwriting thing. So yeah. Okay. Thanks. And so she she received inspiration from a visitor that is has a lot in common. Yeah, she called the storyteller. The storyteller. But she she read. It, it was something that was never belligerent towards her. It was something that was always a an inspirational figure. It was she felt peace about it, and she did say kind of at the time she she did remember when she was in high school, seeing a couple of times some weird things in her room that scared her, but it never really came towards her. It never really kind of approached her. So it's it's kind of basically a building storm of different entities and characters that was not shared between the family, because it does seem to be that you have several members of your family that are sensitive to these kinds of things, which often happens. So much of your story hits on so many of these, I guess, classic symptoms of the mocking, of the the draining, the the mm-hmm. kind of the imagery that other people have experienced and, you know, are to this day frightened of. But is there any kind of trend with either of your family lines of any kind of psychic ability or encounters with these kinds of things? I've done family research. I've done genealogy going back probably more so on my family side than Deb's. And that's only because they don't talk much about things. Not that I've been able to ascertain, but definitely I think both for Deb and myself, we've always been kind of the the weirdos, if you will, from the standpoint that we've been open to a lot of sensitive type of topics as well as just open to the spiritual world. Okay. And let me just, before we get to like a few like sort of final questions, I did want to ask you the, I want to make sure we have a clear understanding of the culmination of the events. After the the incident in the kitchen where, where all the family came to his aid, then you had James's team was working remotely to take that to the next step. And then was that the final step in the cleansing of the house? For the next three days, every day we did come back and we did do smudgings. So we did do more incense around the house. Then after everything was was clear and they did give us the all clear and it was, to be frank, pretty honest. 
that we knew when things were clear because suddenly Jack slept through the night for those next couple of nights from that night, as well as the next couple of nights, we all slept in the same room. We all kind of huddled together. Jack slept through the night. Jack woke up and he was able to walk around. He had a smile on his face. Yeah, he could walk through thresholds of the house. There was no buckling of his knees. I, I, you know what? That's. I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to ask you a question about that. When, when this occurred during, you know, when it was at its height and he was having difficulty with the thresholds to the house, how did that work? You guys would, or some, you know, two people would carry him through, and then once he got to the other side, was he able to walk again, or was he? We weak? wouldn't carry him through, but we would we would stand on either side of him right underneath his arm. So we were ready and prepared for him to not be able to step through. So we would kind of walk him up to the threshold and then we knew he would collapse. So we'd kind of be there for him to catch him to, yeah, to catch him basically. And then we'd pull him through and then he was able to walk from there. Not to say that his knees would not continue to buckle after that, but they just were not as bad. It's kind of hard to describe, but it was only at the thresholds that he would lose complete ability to walk through. Man, between the crab walking and the collapsing, I mean, j- just wow. Yeah, it's uh, hard to imagine what it's like to watch your kid going through that. All right, it's time to hear from our final sponsor for the evening, Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious, home-cooked meals. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. New recipes are created weekly and are not repeated within a year. And you can choose your meals from a variety of recipes or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. You can also customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Choose delivery options to fit your needs. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. I've made a bunch of them now, and I can honestly say their step-by-step recipe cards are super easy to follow. And since the ingredients are all pre-portioned, I find that I can make a delicious meal in about 40 minutes or less. I like that I can sit down to a restaurant-quality meal that doesn't seem like something I made. And unlike me, I'd say you were a pretty good cook already, so that's really saying something. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, as we mentioned last week, they've added an extra meal to the special offer for our listeners. Check out this week's menu and get three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash astonishing. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So let's get back to the last segment of the interview. And then we'll talk about our conclusions. Let's roll it. I wanted to ask a few questions, like, now that, you know, this thing is in your rearview mirror, and it's been, what, I guess a year, a couple years now? Two years? Two years, yeah. Two years, okay. Two years, uh, two months, and about four days. Right. <laughs> keeping track at home. Yeah, right. April 23rd. I have a uh, a family friend who, and I think Forrest might have mentioned this to you earlier on the phone today, John, when, when you guys were uh, talking earlier, but who had suggested that he had similar symptoms to Jack relating to uh, severe OCD. 
Is that something that you guys ever had checked out, or is there any history of that with Jack ongoing or prior or any in your family of that kind? Honestly, of out of everybody in the family, Jack's probably the least OCD. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's definitely not OCD. We didn't have that checked out, but Jack was working with counselors about different things and talking to them on a weekly basis about things. They never brought up anything about OCD whatsoever. So no, that wasn't a specific thing we had checked out, but um, we were trying to check all these other leads out and none of those materialized. He is a very anxious child. He does have anxiety issues, I think, just in general, as a lot of teens do. But I think both between the threshold factor, the the getting sick at the smell of the, the smudging, at the, the voices that he was hearing, I think even the logical side of my brain takes into account some of his anxiety, but it pushes it beyond what's what's normal for just someone with an anxiety, even disorder. One of the questions that I've always had kind of has to do with that sort of chicken and the egg thing of, you know, when you have to be very careful about this, but just about the relationship between uh, illness and something like this, a malevolent presence, and how maybe both of them can be accurate and working right. together or, you know, one overlaps the other. And that's probably... It's something that I don't understand anything about. It's just something that I, you know, wonder about sometimes when I'm laying in bed. Well, and I think James was saying too, um, maybe not in the podcast or anything like that, but I think when we were talking to him initially that he was saying something about the entities really want them at their weakest point, really want to take them down um, and will work at them until they're at their weakest point. So, you know, it, it, it would go hand in hand. Well, and the other thing, too, just as far as his strength and his, his weaknesses, and again, everything that he was physically going through to the point where they they thought that maybe he had meningitis, maybe he didn't, but it was to that point where he could have been hospitalized for for a number of different circumstances. This happened at the end of April, and by the second week in June, not only did he still graduate with his eighth grade class, but he he walked through the ceremony. He was laughed around. He was joking with his friends. He was hanging out with his teachers. He was totally recovered within, I'd say, three weeks, but definitely within five weeks. And there's been no recurring any sort of behavior that has come back. Uh, no. That, yeah. Well, he's a teenager now, so it's difficult to go ahead and separate <laughs> yeah, right. the two. <laughs> yeah. What's yeah. actually going on? There's I mean, how's he doing? How's he doing now, he's today? Doing great. Yeah. Yeah, he's doing great. You know, blowing his math teachers away with his abilities and um, just really enjoying life at this point. Is, does he know you guys are doing this tonight? He does know. We have given him the opportunity, not only in the past, but also even for this, to say, hey, Jack, do you want to participate in this? And his response is always the same, no. Yeah, I don't blame him. It's in part because I, I think he's embarrassed because, again, he is a teenager. He doesn't have that same kind of protective fight that that the rest of us have about this topic just as of yet. But I think it's because he's still trying to process what happened, to be honest. Well, of course. I mean, even as adults, as you'd mentioned in the previous interview, most people don't take this 
very well. It's it's not something they they can process as adults, just hearing about it. And as you'd mentioned before, people sometimes go out of their way to stay clear of it uh, because they don't understand it and they're and they're fearful of it. And, you know, to some degree, rightfully so, but not it's really not wanting to understand anything about it. And I can understand that. But you you know that when people hear this, instantly they're going to be not out of mean-spiritedness, but kind of questioning like, well, maybe it was natural gas or radon leaking in. And I think a great argument to that is what you just mentioned. After this, it, it was obvious that something is wrong. And Western medical science observed it. Something is drastically wrong. We just don't know what it is. Well, People may not buy into whatever you did or was suggested for you to do, but it got results in that people got better. He got better. The mood was better. It went away, whatever it was. Well, the other thing, too, as far as I guess the success out of it, he didn't know what was going on behind the scenes through about 95% of it. Right. Based on the fact that he had not only the positive response, but also the positive outcome. It's clear that, at least to us, there are certain things that go on that sometimes you just don't question, you go with it. Because all the things that we did try to do logically, all the things that we went through, you know, Deb has gone through uh, multiple health issues over the course of her life, as most adults kind of do. So she even started off with Western medicine, then she started off going down the homeopathic route. She went through the Eastern route. She has been gluten-free for a number of years. So she's gone through multiple things to try and figure out her own personal body and how it works and what's best for her. We went through that same process for Jack. We went through all of the logical steps. One of the jokes that we've had in the family is that there's team logic and team chaos. Deb is in charge of Team Logic. <laughs> Jack is on Team Logic. I'm in charge of the team of shenanigans, Team Chaos. <laughs> right. One of the big messages that we got out of this, in spite of the way that people tend to think of things being black or white or or good guys and bad guys, there are often just things that are there. And whether or not they are positive, negative, or otherwise, they're still going to interact with you. And I think we just happen to unfortunately throw the dice and get something that was actually malevolent we lucked out and that we also threw the dice and that there was something that was positive at the same time thankfully though we recognized that and because we found james and his group they helped not only from their side but they also gave us the strength the knowledge and the reminder that we still have power to be able to to counter some of those things that were going on. And I think that's one of the things that I think we want to share the story to help other people from the standpoint that there are a lot of crazy things, a lot of weird things that happen in the world. Sometimes there are answers that you would expect. Oh, I, I didn't put the, the battery into the, into the thermostat. But sometimes there are some things that you really need to be open to looking for other answers, because sometimes you're going to have to come up with a way to solve it. And you can't be afraid, because when you're afraid, here's a sidebar. I don't know if you're going to share that. I don't know if you're going to share is the part. Is this your succinct version? Well, this is exactly the same conversation Scott yeah. and I have. Yeah. Can, I, can I just intervene? The thing that I loved about 
and what I still find remarkable about this whole entire event is the fact that I know I can call on Michael, the archangel, and all of his angels, and I can protect myself at any point in time. It's that simple. That's kind of where I was going, too, is when people get afraid, when people get scared, and when they basically stop acting, that's when something malevolent actually gets its power. If you're not afraid, if you've got something that that you believe in that's going to protect you, if you've got something that that you know has ultimate power over XYZ, guess what? You win. Okay, let's start yeah. by thanking John and Deb for such a heartfelt, personal story. Absolutely, and and it's pretty brave of them to do that because you're you're laying it all out there. And you know what? We try to keep it anonymous, but even the people that the family members, friends, people don't know how to handle this. Yeah, they've had yeah, they've had a few folks that they told even within their family that they after they told them the story, they haven't heard from them anymore. Right? I don't think people know what's going on. That's part of the reason it's frightening. But I think just to be safe, they don't want any contact with that because right. they don't know what it is. Yeah, Right. It's kind of like me and Greyfriars Kirkyard. <laughs> you don't know what's going on, <laughs> but you don't want to go there. It's funny. Yeah. Since uh, since we did that story, it's one of our first our Halloween story, Greyfriars Kirkyard. Several of our listeners and some of my <laughs> personal friends yeah. have gone there. Yeah. And nobody has been grabbed or pushed yet. That's an interesting point, though. Yeah. These things are pretty rare. Right. But what's so strange is that when you start asking around, you'll hear stories yeah. from people you know and trust and makes you wonder what's going on there. Because, yes, no, it, most people will never have an experience. I don't know. 80% of the population will never have that. I don't know what the, I would love to know what the actual figures are, but it's pretty rare. So you can rest safe, but it does happen. Yeah. You know what I want to do? I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the things about this case that are fascinating to me, just in terms of the exposure that we've had over the years, even before we started the show, right. to uh, paranormal stories of this nature, demonic possessions, and sort of all those interactions. And yeah, so, there there are patterns. Yes. And we get to, just so you guys know, we get to click over, it's almost like a dial. We get to choose <laughs> our belief system yeah. based on the episode. <laughs> and well, we're not yeah. judgmental and we're no. open-minded. So right now, we're going to pretend that everybody believes in demonic possession while I discuss <laughs> this next little bit. Well, you know what? It's like a movie. Yeah. It's like when you, you may not believe any of that stuff, but you love horror movies, you love being scared. And when you go sit there for your two or three hours now, it's suspension of disbelief, they say in film school. You let yourself listen to the story and take the facts in the movie as they are. Right. Let's talk about just some of the things that really stand out. It's almost classic. Like you, what do you know? What do I know about yeah. demonic possession? I am clearly not. I'm not of the Catholic faith. Right. Although I don't have any training in exorcism. (laughs) I did see Scott put up a St. Christopher's medal in his Jeep on a particularly possibly harrowing road trip just for, just for insurance. I did because, uh, and that's a story for another episode. I had, I had a breakdown (laughs) with my very, at the time, very young son in the car and I had no cell service and it was hot. And on top of that, he was coming down with a fever. Yeah. And we were rescued by a good Samaritan, a truck driver, in fact, yeah. who had absolutely no reason to pull off onto the ramp that we were broken down on, which you could not see from the highway. Well, was he an angel? Well, I, I've know. wondered about that. It's a story for another time. But yeah. uh, the next trip I took with my son, I did, in fact, put a St. Christopher medal in the car. <laughs> you we never break down. You never know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but anyway, um, the whole 3 a.m. thing, let's talk about that. And sure. it's funny, this takes me right back to the, I guess, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. When I used to listen to the KLF. I was very what, fond what of. What is that? Um, I'm not going to sing. Uh, 
People can just look it up. KLF, they had a song called 3AM Eternal. Okay. Their whole album was rooted in strange allusions to the Illuminati, actually, which a lot of people didn't know. It was a huge dance album. It was in all the clubs or whatever. (laughs) You would know the song if you heard it. It's 3AM Eternal. Yeah, Yeah, maybe. Horrible horrible singer. Anyway, which my son will gladly (laughs) tell you. There's a lot of implications about the whole 3 a.m. thing. Well, you you probably know more about this than I do. What, well, it's supposed it, to be a mockery, right, of the yeah, time of Christ's there, death? Because um, he passed a, at 3 p.m., right? Yes, that is what, uh, I don't want to say legend, but that's the story. Yes, the skies turn black out of a clear blue sky. Bad stuff happening, bad weather around 3 p.m., you know what? I'm not sure if that, that that's actually in the scriptures, but there there you go. That's one part of it. The other part is that it is a mocking of the Trinity, the Father, oh, the right. Son, and, and the, the Holy, Holy Ghost. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was mentioned in uh, The Conjuring, the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, we're going back to, and there's some parallels here to that story, but it's, uh, remember when Ed Warren comes in and uh, he goes, have you been hearing three knocks? And like, yeah. It's like, well, that's that's them mocking the the Trinity. But there's something about the number three and, you know, traditionally the witching hour is midnight, but uh, no, man, it's 3 a.m. and specifically 3.33. So John was saying that these incidents and Jack waking up screaming, his nightmares, 3 a.m. to about 3.30, 3.33, I'm going to guess. Uh, there's something about that, and it has symbology. Also, number three, the number of man, I believe. Right. right? I'm not yeah. sure. That is, um, well, the number of the beast, 666. Oh, Okay. Everything has a number, so I, I don't know a whole lot about it. It's mentioned in that Pixie song, uh, Mon- Monkey's Gone to Heaven. There you go. Okay. You know. There's our Pixies. Right I got to squeeze that in. <laughs> so uh, there's something about that that we have not read up on because, uh, again, that's a whole other ball of wax. I'd heard that uh, even the numbers could be different. There was a copy or a very ancient text of the Bible that was found in a garbage dump uh, probably in the last couple of years That's that contradicts that. That is earlier, than, I think, than the Dead Sea Scrolls, they believe this this fragment, that says the number of the beast is 661. Hmm. So who knows? Typo? I mean... You know, I'd heard a long time ago it was actually a code for referring to Caesar if you wanted to speak ill of Caesar safely yeah. to another person. 666, and then it became, he was the manifestation of evil because of it, his leadership and right. that sort of, and it was a code so that you, you know, wouldn't get beheaded when you <laughs> when you talked about it. Uh, I'd heard that too, and it makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, and that's how these legends and lore get started way yeah. back when, and they transmogrify over the years. Here's some other things that I'm interested in about this case that I think is really fascinating. And in some of the more intense stories of hauntings, the really intense ones, the ones that like Ed and Lorraine Warren wound up investigating or whether you see these movies about different sort of famous stories. There's never just one thing. There's not one dude. There's a a multitude of entities all in one place. I, I think there can be. It's it's so wide-ranging. That's why it's never just one ghost. It's never one kind of demon. That's why names are important. Right. Finding out the name of who you're dealing with or what it is is important. And I, this is one of my favorite passages, Jesus casting out the, uh, the, the demons in the flock of pigs. So he, even Jesus needs to know what their name is. And he says, uh, I, there was a man in the cemetery, and I'm kind of really pra- paraphrasing here. We're going to need uh, Dr. Tim to kind of <laughs> jump in on this. Yeah that he was a wild man and he could not be controlled. No bind could hold him. He could break any chain or rope or anything. So uh, he's going nuts. They send Jesus up there to 
uh, deal with this guy. And he takes, again, nowadays he'd be just insane. And yeah. he'd be, probably be shot by the cops. That's right. what would happen nowadays. Right. Well, this guy's insane. They said, please go up there and, and see what you can do. Uh, Jesus goes up there and he casts the demons that are in this man into a flock of pigs and he runs the flock of pigs off a cliff. That's that's how he had to do it. He didn't just wave a wand and his, you know, his spit or two yeah. Magnus or whatever. So <laughs> or the Harry Potter spell, uh, yes. That's how he casts them out. But before, though, he runs them off the cliff, he commands this demon to tell him his name. And the demon replies, our name is Legion, for we are many. Oh, that's that story. That's that okay. story. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, you know what? I love this. Like, ooh, that's that's creepy. Like, yeah. how many are there? Like, is it an army? And uh, and then when you re- actually read, it's like, oh, it's not that creepy, but it's interesting because again, you're seeing you're seeing some glimpses of the mechanics of what happens. And so, yes, like you said, a, a bound up ball of demons and and ill willed entities. And maybe that gives them a lot of strength. They, well, and, yeah, and in this combined. case, there was supposedly benevolent entities present as well with the Native American warrior right. who they had said had that three of his compadres were being yeah. held hostage. Yeah. And because the darker entity had gotten so wrapped up with Jack, even the benevolent warrior was attacking Jack because it could not differentiate between Jack and the presence of this evil spirit. And we know that earlier... You know, if you follow all this story, right. believe, believe it <laughs> all, all due it. respect to John and Deb, yeah. we know that earlier that their daughter in the same room had had a positive repeating experience with a Native American warrior right. who inspired her to write several stories, and she actually wound up published as a result of that. Yeah. It's really fascinating stuff. So now this guy's still there. He's trying to help his friends. We got the bad guy. The bad guy's trying to get Jack, and it's like a full-out war. Yeah, and there, which is how yeah. that's described. The battle between angels and demons is described as a war, and it's like this is a glimpse into that—the possibility that that war crept into this world, and it did it through their house and through Jack. Yeah, well, that's the thing is that we don't know what's going on, but you know, if you put some stock into their technique, the Houston Ghost Research Team and Spirit Remediation Consultants. That's why they needed several people on this. It's just they ganged up on them and they they bombarded them. And and really what it sounds like is that they provided such an irritant that it dispels them. Right. So that's kind of the mechanics of that. And uh, yeah, it's it was hard for them to see in the first place, but the, that's the through the impressions they got. But there's a lot of things going on. I mean, there's a Native American using a sword, which independently... Those two things don't go together. Yeah, it's a, not a jeweled sword. I mean, that, yeah. you know, you're talking uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> and the Native Americans, yes, they had knives, but they called the uh, the American uh, cavalry soldiers the long knives. Right. Because that was a differentiation. It's like, yeah, they don't usually make blades that long. So it doesn't really fit with their iconography, I guess, uh, and their and their history. But who knows what goes on on the other side? Plus, it's metaphorical. You know what I'm saying? That that's that's the imagery you're getting. It's you know. Well, and that lends it to the whole thing that I wonder about because yeah. my belief system is so broad and wide open right. and uh, probably offensive to a lot of people. <laughs> but right. like, I'm not convinced that there is humanity involved in any of these things. It's kind of like the idea that there is something that is attempting to interact with humanity in this world that we know. And it's taking a form that we understand. I'm not convinced 
that it's human at all. Oh no, good you know, or bad, right? There. Well, that's the thing. If you uh, believe the folks that uh, do that study demonology and mediums and psychics and people who can tap into the other side, it is non-human entities, and there's there's a they have a whole set of characteristics of themselves, which is highly intelligent, usually a trickster element. And, and basically, they just like to mess with us. It's, it's a jealousy. We are special creatures. We are, yes, we're simple and we're very flawed, but we have a huge spark of energy and we're special mm. in a way. So well, a if nice you, in, way in a, yeah, in a, in a very spiritual sense, we are special creatures. It's like picking on a sparrow, but they can't help it. They love to do it. And that's why they mess with us. Right. So. Yeah, that's a fascinating take on it. And the last point that I want to make here, and it will come up again whenever we do a show that touches on this kind of stuff, I think it's possible that something like this can happen. And this first came to mind with, I think it's Annalise Michel, yeah. the, the German girl who oh, was yeah. possessed and, and died. And actually the movie, the exorcism Emily Rose. of Emily Rose was yeah. based on that story. And you can hear recordings of her, of Annalise. Yeah, it's, during, it's, it's very, very it's I mean, creepy. it's in German, but it's very, yeah. it's very creepy. But my whole thing is, and, and that movie sort of put it in perspective for me, because of the idea that possibility that whatever is happening can be both medical and spiritual. The yeah. problems can be hand in hand. Right. And there seem to be a lot of people in the world on both sides of that debate who are like, well, it's just medical science and I refuse to believe that faith has any part of this. Yeah. And there's other folks who are like, faith is the only cure. This has nothing to do with medical science. This is a possession. This right. is a what. I believe it's possible that things go hand in hand, that they oh, are yeah. together. And I know, by the way, because we've been written, there was a listener who wrote us, I can't remember who was a medical no. professional. Uh-huh. And I believe asked to remain anonymous and said, I love your show because you guys do address that. I am a doctor. I have years of education and I take an approach to all my patients that involves both my medical knowledge right. and faith and encouraging them and their families to incorporate their faith to help heal whoever is ailing. Yeah. And what harm is there in that? Even if you're skeptical of it, why not try it? It's well, kind of like... It's a lot of self-satisfaction in your own knowledge and beliefs that, no, no, I got it figured out. This is this is what I got. It's rock solid. But obviously, any medical, Western medical professional will tell you there is a definite link between emotions, which are not, you know, quantifiable. I mean, that's how we feel. But you can make yourself sick just by dwelling on something. You and can I'll, die from a broken heart, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I've seen animals do it. That, that happened, yeah. Unfortunately, it happened to my, uh, my great uncle's uh, dog. He went off to war, and he, and he was a happy dog, but he, he just left, and he wouldn't eat. He was sullen, and eventually he died. And, and it's just, when your uncle went to war. When he went to, yeah, he went like to World War II. you saying the dog went to war. I he they not they had dogs <laughs> back then in war, but he yeah. did not go. No, but no, you're, what did, you're saying he is the dog was abandoned by his owner. Yeah, I mean there's other family around, but yeah. that was his that was the guy he connected to and he didn't know where he went. He just was dis, he just went and yeah. uh just worrying about him and, and feeling so sad, he passed away and there's no other reason for it. But yes, that happens with people, and I'll tell you something, when you hear somebody going off going nuts and shooting a bunch of people which unfortunately happens so often today, what's the one thing we all want to know to, to satisfy ourselves? Why did you do it? And I've heard the explanations because I'm, I'm fascinated. I want to know too. And in a few of these cases, uh, one that happened in, unfortunately here in Southern California, you think like, well, this is a snap decision. The guy was angry. Well, yeah, but 
this particular guy, I don't even want to give him, I think we've talked about him before, but he went to the beach for like three or four hours that day. And he thought about, should I, should I continue to do this? And we've, we have mentioned this before, but he was like, yeah, after four hours of looking at the lovely waves and the sunshine and a, and a great setting. Yep. That's what I'm going to do because he had let hate dwell inside him so much for so long that it controlled him. I'm not saying there's a spiritual element to this, but maybe there was, or maybe it's just that, and he dwelled on it so much, like, there's no going back now. I have to do this. Same thing with with the shooter in South Carolina. Like, these people were so nice to him, he said. Like, I sat there and talked to them for about an hour, and they're so pleasant. I thought about not doing this, but then, no, I'm going to do this. Yeah. So what is that? You know, but definitely, yeah, there, there is a connection definitely between your emotional state and your health. And your mental health. Absolutely. It's all connected. And it's one they don't understand. They can't quantify that. No, exactly. At this point. Exactly. I mean, they know when you're upset. They know, obviously, when you have a, a mental condition, it affects your mood. And I know several people who are bipolar, and definitely a couple of them didn't meet with a good end because uh, they got to a spot where they don't see any hope. It's hopelessness. Yeah. And the other thing that I want to say is that there were experiences that the family had. I mean, I already mentioned the daughter had this exposure years earlier to something that inspired her to write. Then also, John was having experiences himself of scratches, feeling something on the bed, waking up. He had a shadow person encounter where he saw something at the foot of the bed that was smiling at him. It's like classic. It's right out of the shadow people handbook. Right. So... He's witnessing, he's hearing sounds, he's hearing voices. You know, they thought, well, maybe it's the neighbors. They had some late, some night owl neighbors. Right, exactly. But there's a point at which everything is starting to add up. Also, the family being cranky with each other, which they didn't say a whole lot about, but I felt between the lines, there was a lot more going on just than what they shared with us. Oh, no, no. Yeah, a total emotional, uh, just a bad vibe. Right. And of course, some of that's to be expected if one of your family is is ill. Right. But there's other, when you look at the stories like the you know, the Conjuring or the Haunting in Connecticut or any of these sort of more famous stories about the influences, you find that people get short with each other and cranky. And it's like, they have to overpower that to, to win. Well, no, you've heard that classically. And I have a friend who uh, grew up here in Southern California and knew this other friend when she was, uh, I think, in high school or even earlier, and their house was purportedly haunted. And then she looked into the history of the house. Well, divorces are common. I don't know about, I think there was a death, a suicide in the house. That seems to be a pretty common theme is that when there's some bad mojo in a specific place, badness happens to people. It continues. It continues. Yeah. But you bring up an interesting point that I wanted to go over if you're being if you're not believing in any of this there's a point where sure these things are just isolated incidents with your loved one or with this you wake up and there's scratches on you things are happening you see people on the foot of your bed how many of these things have to happen to you before you start to wonder what is going on here yeah maybe you're going crazy and a lot of people do because I, they don't believe in this and it's like i'm i think i'm going insane how many of these coincidences or strange happenings tied to this larger incident going on before you then start to wonder about alternatives. And that's exactly what happened with John. These things started piling up like, wait, wait, maybe all these strange things that are happening, maybe they're all connected. Well, John and Deb have chosen to remain anonymous for obvious reasons, not the least of which is to protect Jack. But we made them aware of some of the comments and questions that you guys have sent to us, and he wanted to write a statement for us to read and answer to them. Deb and I know how crazy what our family went through may sound. 
But consider that the nightly news reports drive-by shootings as a typical day's event, or that people commit heinous acts on YouTube and no one bats an eye. Yet the idea of a spiritual battle happening over the soul of a teenage boy is seen as kooky. What happened to Jack was horrible, and we indeed exhausted all paths, medical, intellectual, psychological, before opening up our minds to what else could be the cause of his problems. As would be the case for the mother who suddenly has the strength to lift the car off of her child penned in a car accident. You don't stop her to ask why or how she suddenly had that strength. You go with what works. What wasn't working was doing nothing. And with the signs we saw, deteriorating health with no medical explanation, rapid muscle control degradation with specific inability to cross thresholds in and out of the house, recurring nightmares, their violent content, consistency of their timing, and his nightly screams, voices, scratchings, visions, and a recurring how can such bad things happen to good people experiences to everyone in the family. We reached out to HGR, that's Houston Ghost Research, for help, which seemed to solidify where we found ourselves. Remote viewing from multiple sources immediately identifying something wasn't right. Images drawn which were inconsistent, for a reason, more deception. Jack's violent physical reaction to the smudging as well as seeing the smoke barrier in the house. The overwhelming consistency of the visions between all of our children of the Native American spirit guide and his weapon of choice, the jeweled sword. All of these, in our opinion, add up to one simple fact. We did the right thing and not a moment too soon. Faith and the spiritual resolve of those who were helping us, as well as the inner focus Deb was able to channel and project, turned Jack around immediately and lifted what was an unwelcomed presence in our lives and provided the relief and grace we desperately needed. Our son Jack, as well as the rest of us, made it through what was a dark and dangerous experience to the other side. We could not have done so without the help and guidance of others, and without a rock-solid faith and belief in each other, and with our underlying faith. It is our hope, and in some ways our purpose, to share this story for others who may be similarly lost and facing an enemy without standard explanation. We urge any parents whose children's imaginary friends may seem malevolent to not just laugh it off as a normal part of childhood. Our story, while it may have disturbed some, we truly see it as a joyous one and a cause for celebration. Good people working together, standing strong, and invoking the spiritual strengths in each of us can disperse the unseen forces in this world which try to feed off of our fears and our very souls in an all-too-real sense. While the world seems like it is getting darker, there are ways we can bring light back, which is exactly what we did. Everyone can and should prepare themselves in the manner to which they are accustomed to in terms of personal faith but know that we have the power to turn around any situation, no matter how terrifying. That's a pretty intense statement, but they went yeah. through a pretty intense situation. It's a life-changing event for the whole family. They're still sensitive about it because they don't want it to come back, whatever it was. And to that end, that brings up yeah. a good point, actually. There was some stuff that didn't make it into the final cut of the interview, but right. I wanted everyone to know that they took serious steps 
to bless the house and and yes and protect it going forward, which right. is why they're still living there. They're not just you know like Eddie Murphy. <laughs> no, John right. sent us a this clip. This is of a this. nice house. Get out. Too bad we can't stay. <laughs> yeah. That's what Eddie Murphy's joke used yeah, to be about. Right. White people always staying in the house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. It, you know these guys, uh, they have taken steps that they were guided through by uh, Houston Ghost Research, right, to protect the house going forward. And so far, it's been working wonderfully. They've had no incidents of any kind. No, they're they're all doing well, which is the great part of this story is that they came out of it. This just may seem pretty wild, but people were sick and they all felt it. They all saw what they saw. So whatever it was, whatever they did, you know, it had something to do with that location, which is another big thing. So uh, yes, fortunately they were able to, you know, this house is clean. Yeah. <laughs> they, ble- they blessed the house and there you go. So they're still living there. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So, all right. Well, you wrote a pretty, uh, pretty cool closing statement here. You want to? Uh, yes. My do manifesto. That and, yeah. When, <laughs> for all those people that like Forrest to get off the chain. Jeez. Oh, well, you're going to probably tune out before I finish it, but <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Oh, thank you. Stick well, with us. No, and it's, I, we're it's, wrapping yeah. this episode up. We're going to okay. let Forrest go through his statement here, it's, and uh, that's going to be the end of this episode. But. Well, I want everybody to keep these things in mind because you know Scott and I we chewed over this one quite a bit because. Not only is it a different and uh, pretty wild story as a personal account, and some people like those, some people don't, but it's probably the wildest story, one of them, that we, we got, and kind of the most complete, beginning, middle, and end, and, uh, and a conclusion, which you don't often get. There's skepticism, and there's ideas of belief, and that's what I want to talk about here. So we knew going in that this was not only going to be one of our most captivating episodes, but it was also going to be one of our most controversial. Not that we're ever intending to be controversial, but with the nature of the topics we cover, it's often unavoidable. Now that we're wrapping up the final thoughts here, I want to again make one thing abundantly clear, because although this podcast is meant to be entertaining and sometimes by accident informative, Personal accounts like this and the listeners' reactions to them are serious because we're dealing with people's reputations here, which in turn can affect their livelihoods and personal relationships. So I want to reiterate what Scott talked about earlier, that John and Deborah, as parents, did everything right. I don't think any reasonable person could argue against that. The reason I want to mention this again is to address any concerns that trying something, quote, alternative, unquote, as a treatment to a serious condition was irresponsible of them, and that by presenting their story, we're also responsible for promoting a possibly dangerous practice. I'm going to reinforce another thing Scott mentioned, that although it may seem like we have, we have not, nor will we ever, endorse a particular practice or belief. While we will tell you our personal opinions, our aim has always been merely to present, not recommend, and I believe there is a difference between the two. As for the parents' actions, remember the actual course of events. Once their son started experiencing some of these more serious symptoms and was missing school because of them, they took him to their family pediatrician. The doctor could find nothing diagnosable. They then took him to a major children's hospital emergency room after a particularly rough episode. They also couldn't find the cause of these very real symptoms. Now, during all of this, the standard medical tests were being performed, an MRI, CAT scan, blood work, etc., and still no conclusive results. All of the Western medicine doctors and alternative healthcare providers can clearly see that Jack is suffering and getting worse, but they couldn't offer any real solutions. The only thing they kept saying is, well, if he gets worse, bring him back in. 
which they did, and he kept getting worse. Following Western Medicine's recommended course of action, the next step was to see a neurologist. When the neurologist had no answers or even a recommendation for what to try next, they broadened their search for answers by exploring alternative approaches. A chiropractor that provided relief in the past, a cranial therapy specialist, an acupuncturist, a naturopath, and even a mental health counselor to rule out any emotional causes. In their spare time, as any worried parents would do nowadays, John and Deborah were using the blood testing data and the documented symptoms to do their own research online, just to make sure nothing was being overlooked. John would find that some of the symptoms would fit a particular condition, but it wouldn't fit everything. So John and Deborah tried every conventional and alternative remedy they could find without going bankrupt. If you're thinking that they should have taken Jack to an advanced medical research facility like the Mayo Clinic, you also have to realize that that option is insanely expensive. They had to keep supporting themselves and their other three children, one of whom was in college. So after trying everything conventional Western medicine can offer and even some more mainstream alternative treatments and still getting no answers or even a hunch as to what's going on, John suggests that they try one avenue they hadn't gone down yet and many wouldn't even consider. His wife Deborah, mostly out of exhaustion and initially skeptical, agrees. Now, I would agree that if they hadn't tried Western medicine first and went straight to less, quote, unquote, accepted practices for this very serious condition, then it might be irresponsible to some degree. But they didn't. They first did everything you're supposed to do in America. And after all they went through and you still don't get any answers, what's a parent supposed to do? Give up? Hope that he gets better on his own? Or do you keep trying things that sound so out there that they might even bring scorn and ridicule? If it doesn't involve risky procedures or pharmaceuticals and is not going to cost you anything, then why not try it? Remember, James and his spirit remediation consultants didn't charge them anything. The worst outcome is that you just end up in the same place as you were before. As John said, this kind of a threat to your family triggers a fight or flight response. And when it comes to your children, you fight. So now that you've heard the rest of the story, you probably have your own theory as to what was really happening, and many of you will be skeptical with regards to not only the cause, but the cure as well, and within mainstream thinking, understandably so. I think some folks think perhaps I'm more ready to believe in the unexplained, but I like to look at things rationally first and search thoroughly for an explanation rooted in science as we know it. However, when I hear about something that seems paranormal and I'm not satisfied with the scientific explanations given, I'm open to hearing about other possibilities, as is Scott. Now, you may not believe it, but I don't believe every story I hear. But when it has that ring of truth to it, as I sense it, and from what I know about the person, I listen with open ears and an open mind. It's kind of like when you see a magic trick. You have to keep in mind that it's not magic. You're just not seeing the mechanics behind the trick. So I believe when we see something that seems mystical... We're just not seeing what's really going on behind the curtain and beyond our comprehension. As some of you have noticed, I've also come to believe that there are rules that govern this unseen world. Why some things seem to happen and why some things don't. Maybe the only way we can start to understand these rules and mechanics of the other side is by piecing together the clues found in the stories people tell us about their experiences. When our brightest minds like Brian Greene and Michio Kaku tell us the current theoretical physics models support the idea of a multiverse or the existence of 11 or maybe even 12 dimensions, the idea of an other side maybe isn't so crazy after all. And speaking of crazy beliefs, 
If there's anything that's controversial about this story, it's because of belief. Because when you talk about skepticism and rationality with a story like this, you're really talking about belief. What do you believe, and how strongly do you stand behind that belief? Do your beliefs preclude the possibility of anything outside of them? Belief is one of the most personal things about us. It helps define who we are. So when our beliefs are challenged, we often see it as an attack on us, or a chance to attack someone else. I can tell you one thing I'm not going to believe, and that's if you tell me you know how the entire universe works, and therefore you know what's possible or impossible. Sure, I think some things are very unlikely, but who am I to tell anyone what's impossible? Impossible things do seem to happen now and again, and when they do, we like to talk about it. It's partly why we're doing this podcast. I think when it comes to belief and skepticism, they're not mutually exclusive. One can employ both to navigate our existence. It's okay to question the world around us. It's okay to foster a healthy skepticism, with the key word being healthy. I also think our mind should be adaptable to new ideas, and I think it's unhealthy when our minds are already so made up that our thinking becomes rigid. It doesn't seem to me like it's the path to enlightenment. But like anything else, there's an extreme end to that sliding belief scale, and it might be the territory of that buzzword, the debunker. Now this is what I think the difference is between someone who is skeptical and a debunker. A skeptic is someone waiting to be convinced, someone wanting some kind of evidence to be presented that they can understand and believe as solid. The skeptic wants evidence that can be explained by means of our common experience, and until that's presented, they're going to go with what they know. But maybe there's room for them to change their minds. On the other hand, to the debunker, it doesn't matter what photo you showed them or even one that they took themselves. Even if you handed them a ghost in a jar, no matter what you present as evidence, it can't be real because those kinds of things simply aren't possible. And since the paranormal isn't possible, then the answer must be something we currently understand. Maybe that would change once they experienced something themselves, but then again, maybe not, because denial is also the safer position. Clearly, this is a debate that's not going to get settled here, and frankly, in the end, what you believe is rational or possible doesn't matter to the parents we just heard from. What matters to them is that their son was dying right in front of them, and when nothing conventional worked, they took a chance on a treatment that, for whatever reason, seemed to work, and work instantly. As the saying goes, it's hard to argue with success. Jack is now healthy and thriving, and to this family, that's what matters most. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this series. We'll be back in a week with a new episode. We'd like to thank our sponsors, The Great Courses Plus, Harry's, and Blue Apron. You can now find easy links to all of their offers at astonishinglegends.com slash sponsors. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.